Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Charles Van Vliet, the Chief Investment Officer of Textron, where he manages $10 billion in defined benefit assets and $5 billion of defined contribution assets. Charles joined Textron a decade ago after eight years at the Pension Fund of United Technologies and is widely respected as one of the most thoughtful and outspoken CIOs in the space. Our conversation covers Charles' background and turns to the objectives of corporate pension funds, Textron's strategic asset allocation, and Charles' creative implementation of value-added opportunities across asset classes. Along the way, he shares a host of opinions about what works and doesn't for institutional investors. Before we get going, 
The holidays are fast approaching, and just like learning from investment greats, we've got you covered. It just so happens that my wife works with one of the best custom jewelers in the country. They've sold jewelry to kings, queens, presidents, first ladies, and lots of regular folks like us too. For the ESG conscious, they only sell lab diamonds alongside a line of incredible looking travel jewelry. You can get a great gift for your loved ones knowing all along that you'll help me get serious brownie points for mentioning your business on the show. Hop on Instagram and look up at Greenwich Jewelry Concierge to check it out. Now, if you value experiences more than baubles, or if you're a single male, in part because you missed my spread the word advice on the Friends Reunion show in September, we've got an experience for you too. Hop on our website, capitalallocators.com, click the premium tab, and buy premium memberships for your colleagues and friends for less than the price of a cup of coffee each week, probably a lot less after inflation. Your friends will love you for getting them the weekly experience of receiving an email from us each Saturday morning with announcements, my favorite reading of the week, and updates on our guests. They can also access our library of transcripts that's so large at this point, it takes more than a year to get through reading just one a day. And if that's not enough to warm your heart to spread holiday cheer, between now and the end of the year, we're offering a holiday discount of 20% off the first year of membership. I'm afraid I can't make the same offer for the sparkling jewelry my wife sells that will brighten up your holidays, but their prices are already so low, you won't believe it. Hop on our website and the coupon code will be waiting for you, or hop on Instagram and look up at Greenwich Jewelry Concierge. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Charles Van Fleet. Charles, great to see you. Great to be here. Well, why don't we go through a little bit of your background and path to the seed of Textron? Well, Ted, that'd be in 1979. I went to work for Mitsui Bank in San Francisco, selling certificates of deposit at 18%. These were in the early Volcker years. And then having worked at a Japanese bank, my first then true career was at Nomura Securities in Tokyo. I had spoken a bit of Japanese. I had some financial background. I went off to Tokyo for three years in a training program and was a JGB trader in between Tokyo and New York. Trading JGBs, you know, they call it the Widowmaker, right? Because you're short of the 4%, you're short of again the 3%, short again 2%. This is ridiculous. And rates go to zero and you get fired. So uh, <laughs> with that trading background, I went then to the buy side of Brown Brothers Harriman down on 10 Wall. And from there, a succession of other asset management firms, mostly with a fixed income focus, Alliance Capital, Putnam Investments, Credit Suisse Asset Management. At the end of Credit Suisse Asset Management, at the end of my, I had a handcuff period, I came over to the plan sponsor side in 2005, and that was with uh, Robin Diamante, who was still there. And uh, again, I owe her that opportunity to be invited to the buy side. So I've been on all three sides of the business. I call the broker-dealer side, the asset management side, and the allocator side. You mentioned that when you were first starting with CDs, they were yielding 18%. Yeah. What perspective did that give you when you launched into your career in a rate environment like that? Well, of course, I was, you know, 2021 at the time, I was finishing up my last year at UC Berkeley and remember seeing, you know, we were always burning an effigy of somebody out in the middle of Sprout Hall and, and it was Paul Volcker. And I remember looking and saying, I don't know who that guy is, but, you know, that seems a little rough, you know. So he was not afraid to be an enemy of the party, as they say. So experiencing his years along with the years into Greenspan, it's been a one-way ride after all from 1982, the collapse of rates to where we perhaps have seen a turn. What we're seeing unravel, you know, here even today is 
when you lift rates from a negative one and a half reel to a positive one and a half reel, stuff just breaks because you would spend so many years with no volatility in rates. That almost has broken the country of the UK, and now it's breaking the whole crypto because people aren't going to put up with earning zero on their crypto when I can get 4% in a T-bill. So it's phenomenal to see this happening. And on the other side, you then go over to Japan, and that Widowmaker has lasted and continues to last to some extent. How does that change your view of thinking about timing in markets? Don't get too smart for yourself and don't get married to your trades. Are we going to see the end of Japan and yield curve control? As you know, it's highly rumored. Can they extract themselves without, again, breaking something, perhaps even breaking the U.S. Treasury market? $45 billion in currency intervention. That money had to come from somewhere. It came from U.S. Treasuries. So it'll be interesting if, if Japan can extract themselves without something breaking here. What did sitting on the sell side contribute to your awareness when you then went to the buy side? Am I allowed to use swear words? Of course. You know what's a great thing about the allocator side? There's like, a, there's like a sign over the door that says no assholes allowed. It's just so refreshing. The broker-dealer side of the business, it is, uh, you know, you get up to go for, for a long weekend and you come back and I'm sure your chair is still going to be there. It is really that cutthroat. And, and for that reason, probably that's why it pays so very well, because there is less security, certainly, than there is on the, on the allocator side. From having that breadth of experience, what did you take from that as you've seen over the years in the allocator side when you first got the UT? What I've taken is I think it makes me think of a, there was a great line, Paul Volcker. Somebody said, you know, Mr. Volcker, all these amazing financial innovation that the United States has come up with from CLOs to CDOs to CDO squareds to knockout options to what do you think was the most exciting great financial development that you've experienced in your 40-year career. And he kind of scratched his head and he said, I know, the automatic cash machine. <laughs> in other words, we just make stuff up. Similar product, just in a different package. doesn't make it a bad package, but we really do. I had somebody coming in yesterday pitching infrastructure. And I said, what is infrastructure? I, I really, I truly, legitimately, I don't understand what this is. They said, well, it's, it's an airport or bridge or a road. I said, well, oh, it's just real estate. They said, no, no, it's infrastructure. I said, well, it's real estate with some unique patterns, but it's really just, you got this asset. If you don't have a tenant for it, it's worth nothing. And so you get a cash flow off of that and you might get to increase your rent with inflation if it's a bridge, but we just make stuff up. It's just real estate. What was the path to the point where you felt ready to go run a pension fund on your own? It was just something I'd always wanted to do. Robin's very young and bright and energetic. I always tease her. She could go on to get on the board of any Fortune 500 company she wanted, she, but she loves where she is. And I, I'm just, just hitting that, that glass ceiling. You know, she's also out there to embrace the DEI cause. She is very strongly embracing. I heard her the other day. I was in an audience of 300, and she was up there speaking about her work with diversity, the DEI, diversity and inclusion. And at the end of this talk, she kind of saw me out in the audience, and she said, but let me caution everyone here. The objective is diversity, diversity of thinking. And we shouldn't necessarily conflate diversity of thinking with diversity of gender, race, or color. They may go together, they may not. May not. She, goes, she looked at me, and she said, 10 years ago, I had two tall white males working for me. They couldn't be more opposite. One, if you give them, you know, a question to answer, he needed, you know, 10,000 gigabits of data and to be going to his office for 10 days. And the other, and she looks out at me, you give him a dilemma and he would think and respond from his gut. And she said, so I had an entirely different diversity from two tall white males. And that's, 
That is the goal. And I thought, you know, good for her. Good for her to say, don't necessarily conflate the two. They, they may be related, they may not. But that's really what the goal is. So when you came into the seat, how did you take the lessons you learned, both those types of leadership lessons from Robin and then portfolio structure lessons and start thinking about how you frame out the challenge of investing tech strongly? Well, Robin, I think very differently about the market. So there was not, nothing at all similar about that. I think I'm a kind of a unique beast in, in SIBA that I came from a Wall Street background. And her fear about bringing in a Wall Street person, which is a legitimate fear, is that they tend to be too transactional because as a PM of a bond portfolio at, at Putnam or Credit Suisse, or you're making hundreds of trades a year. You come to an allocator side, you're making three, three things because they, they're much bigger and more expensive and moving around a larger amount of capital. So that was a concern of hers. And I had to be watchful of, yes, my tendency to overtrade, overtransact. And how about the broader question of how did you want to set out managing the capital at Textron? Well, you know, I thought, Ted, that we have all these artificial constructs. You know, we have one person doing private equity and another just person doing public equity. And go, well, that's ridiculous. So just equity. We've created these artificial constructs about what we call asset classes. And so I've tried to break away from that a little bit. I really only think there's two asset classes. There's rates, as in government rates, and there's equity. Then there's equity proxies called spreads. So high yield is just an equity proxy with a 0.4 and BDCs are an equity proxy with a 1.2 beta, and spreads is just an equity proxy. And I'd even go so far as to say real estate really is just a spread product. It's a bond. It's a fixed income. The building itself is worth nothing if it doesn't have tenants. Real estate's really just a fixed income portfolio of credits, and the credits are the tenants. And the building is your residual value, just like an investment-grade bond. So if you take those three layers, how did you put that into a portfolio construct? Everything we have in our portfolio, we assign an equity beta to it. And I know it's all bad math. Like I, like I said, we assign a 0.4 to high yield. Sometimes it trades like a 0.2, sometimes like a 0.8. I think I'm in the bad math ballpark with a 0.4. So everything in the portfolio will roll up. And this, I'm not saying anything brave here. I think probably if we had the BlackRock Aladdin system or, you know, one of these, one of the bar systems, it would probably do the same kind of thing. But we assign a beta so that just because I have, you know, a bunch of money in high yield, I don't call it a bond. It's not a bond. It comes out on average right now about 0.6 uh, S&P. So it means that I'm overweight that portion of the S&P or else I need to take out of my equity portfolio. And that's my philosophy and how that's very different to my peer group. These days, there's at least a lot more awareness on the actual investment challenges for a pension fund. And would love to get your take over these last years you've been in this seat, how you frame out what the investment challenge is. In 2006 was a watershed legislation called the PPAA Act, Pension Protection Act. And it's at that time when they changed the smoothing rules for the asset returns of a corporate pension to materially shorter. If you have a 20-year smoothing, I guarantee you over 20 years, stocks will outperform bonds. You know how I know that? Because if stocks don't outperform bonds, we're going to have much bigger problems. So stocks will outperform bonds over 20 years. So if your smoothing is 20 years, then, then you're comfortable to say, I have a bond-like liability, but I have an equity-like asset. And I know over time, the asset will outperform that liability. In 2006, by significantly shortening that smoothing period, there was a rush to say, gee, maybe we should act more like an insurance company and cash flow match our mortality tables with a cash flow bond that matures in the same year. So it's been a slippery slope since that time. But often people like to have 
they're taking it too. So they said, well, I will only use half of my assets to achieve 80% hedging, and I'll use the other half of my assets to remain invest in the stock market. The way you do that is two ways. One is you, what's called a key rate duration mismatch. Or if I have a bunch of 10-year liabilities, I say, ah, oh, that's not important. I will replicate the duration value of that with 30-year security. So I'm duration, I'm yield curve mismatched. That's a common way. The other common way, as we've experienced in the UK, where the UK, of course, has gone through a meltdown because they were using derivatives. They were leveraging. So they were only using 50% of their assets levered to be hedged and the other 50% still remaining in growth assets. So when you've tackled this at Textron, you've got to generate returns to help support this liability over time. How does it work with how you create your investment program in alignment with the company? All CIOs take the marketing order from the CFO. So the CFO, he or she, will give the marching orders about, I am concerned about balance sheet volatility. I'm worried about contribution volatility. I'm worried about PBGC premiums, variable premiums. So the, it's the CFO that really is giving the marching orders to the CIO. The CFO at uh, Textron, uh, Frank Connor, I think has been, he's, he's brilliant in the markets and brilliant in, in foresight. And, and his instructions to me are pretty simple. If you get me good returns, seven, seven and a half percent every year, all problems go away. The fund will be fully funded. The contribution volatility drops off. The balance sheet volatility drops off. And in fact, that's been the path we pursued. So we're about 116% funded and we still remain growth focused. We do not have an LDI focused plan. When Frank said to you seven and a half percent every year, is he talking about year in, year out? Or is he talking about smoothing over some period of time? He's talking about smoothing. You know, last year we, we exceeded by three times and this will, will underperform by three times. And, and so, yes, it's over an average. I think the holy grail quest is what gives you 110 up and only 90 down. Not many things have a skew like that. It's going to be something that has kind of an optionality to it. So what things give you S&P-like upside, but none of the downside? Call options will do that on the S&P. Pretty expensive. So you say, okay, what is the least expensive thing I can buy that'll give me some type of skew in that pattern return? A really easy place to fall back that we have consistently is we just remain overweight U.S. dollar. We have a standing long dollar with a short versus yen, Aussie, and euro, and it's a positive carry. We do it unfunded, so it's levered. It's a 5% position, and it pays off handsomely at times like this because the dollar is still a risk-off currency. And that's exactly what's happening here yet again. So I'm looking for things that are inexpensive, that give me that kind of skew, upside versus downside capture. So that skew that you've found that you think works well with the portfolio, you said is 5% levered. What does the other 100% look like? We start with an asset allocation structure, and that's as set by the committee. We're in 30% alternatives, which is private equity, real estate primarily, a couple of hedge funds, but mostly real estate, private equity. 30% fixed income and the balance in public equity. Now, public equity is U.S. and international. And then the committee gives me very wide bands around that, and I aggressively play, play within those bands. Let me give you an example. My, the, the committee has decided that we have a 3% allocation to high yield in the benchmark. Well, I look at that, Ted, and say, well, what the committee is telling me is that they are comfortable with non-investment-grade securities and with somewhat okay liquidity. I don't have to put high yield in my high yield bucket. So what do I put in there? I put converts in there. I put BDCs in there. I put fallen angels in there. You know, the benchmark is to me to suggest what kind of risk expectations and, and liquidity expectations they have in the portfolio. Just because it has that label. Look, I'll be honest. There's nothing in a public REIT that's real estate. Public REITs are not real estate. On any given day, it's equity. And convertible bonds 
surprise, surprise, are not bonds. It's equity. And it's fine. You know, convert, convertible bond is a, is a 0.8 S&P and a REIT is a 0.9 S&P and high yield is, we call it a 0.4 S&P. Everything is going to have an S&P beta to it. But just because it's labeled that way, I don't care what it's labeled. I care what it acts like. What does it look like? So our CLO equity, I call it a 2X Russell 3000. It has that kind of volatility. You mentioned some kind of correlations to the S&P. Is that how you take the construct of an asset allocation and turn it into whatever you want to find investments in? Yes. We don't have any consultants. I'm not a big believer in consultants. I've been doing this for 40 plus years. To be honest, it's a, it's a, it's a back of an envelope and a pencil. I just need to be in the ballpark of what, what is how you're going to act like in a drawdown like this. It's acting just like you would have modeled. What is a BDC going to act like? It's just like it's model. What is a REIT going to act like? You know, no surprise here by any of this. I don't like to spend a lot of time thinking about where stuff gets put in the portfolio, but here's why that's important, at least for corporate plan sponsors. The CFO asked me every year to come to him with a recommendation about what next year's expected rate of return is. It's a corporate requirement for gap purposes that he has a EROA and he's allowed them to accrue at that stated EROA. And at the end of the year, he'll do a cancel revise on that accrue. So when we take that, we're going to probably target seven and a quarter again this year. He's going to take that to our internal auditors, to E&Y. And E&Y is going to look and say, well, is that a realistic number? Frank, how do you back this up? And he's going, well, Charles has provided me with all these public benchmarks. And so we took fixed income and added equity risk premium, and we added an international premium, and we added a, a default assumption. And so here's how we think that this is a realistic number. So I, Frank doesn't care about that. I don't care about benchmarks. EY does, because it goes into the gap accounting. I know it drives the average asset manager crazy when we scratch our head and say, I don't know where I'm going to put this. Convertible bonds, where do I put it? CLO equity, where would I put it? I know they hate their conversation. The only reason it's important is because of a gap requirement for this EROA. So the core of your portfolio, how have you tackled the public equity piece? Everything through external managers. And your typical microcap to megacap and value to growth to benchmark agnostic to more benchmark aware to a couple of managers who are very focused. For example, we've always had a dedicated allocation to, my team's going to hate me when I hate to say this, I call it our cat stocks, chocolate, alcohol, tobacco. Because <laughs> I consume all three and I will pay any price. And so those are just good consumer staples that in an environment like this have perfect pricing power. So again, better that than to buy some lousy linkers or tips. And then I have been as maximum underweight international as I could be, as much as I felt comfortable. Not to be harsh about this, but I would hear somebody once say it. They said, you know, we really have two economies and two markets, Ted. We have, you know, the U.S. here and we have China over here. And in between we have... A museum. And if you, if, you, if you want a latte at the Louvre, it's a great place, but there's not a lot to buy there. I mean, there just really isn't. So Europe tends to be very, very heavy into banks, insurance companies. There's a couple of great pharmas. Now, part of the problem isn't, isn't their making. Part of the problem is that any technology upstart that starts in Germany or starts in Berlin or starts in um, the U.S. steals it away. Same thing with Israel. Same thing with... So you know, when they're looking for you know, seed capital, they're looking for round B or round C of capital. Somebody in Silicon Valley says, great idea. I got a hundred million for you, but you have to move the company and the team to California. So it isn't that Europe's not capable. It's just that the U.S. will steal those industries time and time again. But we have very little in Europe. We have a, 
a stake in the ground in China. I think you, you can't afford not to be in China. Somebody said to me the other day, they said, Charles, it's immoral to buy China. I said, moral? What a word to use for us capitalists. But anyway, I think we are all best served to educate and get up the learning curve in China as quickly as we can. And how have you approached investing in China? All in A shares. So we didn't want any eight shares. We didn't want any red chips. We want as much as possible somebody who's reflecting the local economy. And so that's a lot of healthcare and fintech. These areas that China is, is way behind on. So it is not the Alibaba's and the 10 cents. It is going to be more domestic focused. And it's been rough. I mean, the currency alone has been rough over the last year. On the fixed income side, you've touched a little bit around some of the edges. You talk about converts could be part fixed income. There's an aspect of REITs that are fixed income. What is your fixed income allocation comprised of? We really only talk about two kinds of fixed income. We have you know, rates and then we have spreads. My favorite spread product, as I said before, is, is leveraged single B, very little IG. And my favorite rate is going to be U.S. Treasuries because, again, I'm not completely without thought to my liabilities, but that will speak more closely to my liabilities, U.S. Treasury rates. How about the private markets, private equity, venture capital? We have some growth and buyout mid-cap, and we just never went deep into venture, you know, seed or A round, partially because we just, you know, we're not interesting money to Sequoia and, and to Sand Hill Row, because Sand Hill Row says, you're not going to be here in the long run. As I like to remind my team, I said I was chatting with the actuary the other day and, and was reminded that in the year 2092, we're out of a job. I mean, one way or another, guys, this is, you know, that's, that's when the last participant dies. And so, you know, Sand Hill Row knows that as well. They go, corporate money just is not necessarily sustainable, particularly those down in LDI path that are going to give the money back to Prudential. So I'm not going to necessarily get into the best venture. And so we had never pursued that. And on the private side, what's your take on the environment today? Oh, I think couldn't couldn't be better. I think they're all running for opportunities, ways to get this into not only the 401k channel, but into the into the private channel. And I, I challenge people sometimes to think about how they spend their money every day. You know, I woke up this morning and I bought a coffee and then I bought a paper and then I stopped at the local bagel shop and then the wife sent me out to the local fish store. You know, I spend gosh, probably easy 40% of my money on private firms. Now, that might be a private firm, you know, one guy with a fish shop. It's a private firm. We've all forgotten how prominent a part private firms are in our life every day. And so it is, as you know very well, Ted, it's exploding with opportunity now trying to figure out ways to get into the retail channel. And how have you triaged that concept that, well, there's all this private business out there, therefore we should be investing in this into practice? We will go into a mid-cap buyout firms. Uh, we do not do any co-invest. I'm simply not large enough for that. I don't have the expertise. Because of that, I'm not real thrilled when our GPs will raise $500 million and then raise $500 million worth of opportunity for direct co-invest. And my pushback on that is, well, so I'm really just subsidizing the other guy who's taking the co-invest slice. You know, he doesn't care so much about the $20 million that he invested. He's, he cares about the $500 million worth of access and co-invest. So the firm has become his sourcing agent, and I'm subsidizing the whole thing. I think there is a little bit of rub between you know, medium to small guys like myself and the large state plans. The large state plans like Co-Invest, the large state plans can cut their own conditions. The large state plans are going to push back more on ESG things. That is less important to me that they have a different set of stakeholders than I do. They have different conditions they want to bring. So I spend a lot of time looking at who are my fellow LPs. We are in a partnership together, after all. 
a lot more attention needs to be paid to that. Curious how you reconcile the theory that these other LPs who are doing this co-invest are free riding on your capital with the reality that that's happening. And so should you consider figuring out how you participate pro rata so there is no free riding going on? Well, probably best not to name a firm. So let's say I'm going to a, a, a mid-cap buyout fund raising $500 million with $500 million worth of co-invest. So they're going to go hunting for a billion-dollar kind of opportunities. So they are, they are kind of forced into what is perhaps an unnatural part of their cap space because they, they, they'd love to spend the 500 in, in co-invest. And that co-invest that I'm subsidizing and is being a distraction to and perhaps dragging that 500 million GP into a territory they're not comfortable with. So we spend a lot of time talking to them about, is this forcing you into hunting grounds that is outside of your, your comfort zone? And of course, they're all going to say, oh, no, 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 we, we got this handled. But those are the kind of challenges I think that uh, is, is still going on. How do you handle these various challenges? There are the things that you believe and you would like to see, say, through your manager. And then there are opportunities where you either have to decide you're going to sign up or move on to the next one. Yeah, just move on to the next one. Get in that relationship and move on. All very cordial and people have different focus. Uh, I congratulated KKR the other day. We don't, uh, well, we got a couple of small things for KKR. I make it a practice, Ted, everybody who comes in, I, I count how many pages in the pitch book before the word ESG shows up. And I said, congratulations, you're the winner. It showed up on page one. And so we had a chat and they said, well, they get a lot of pressure, particularly when they go to continental Europe. And I said, well, I'll make a forecast for you. I said, I think someday, just like back in the back in the 80s, you used to have to carry two business cards, one with a bug on it, union bug, and one without, and never get them mixed up. You're going to have two pitch books. You better not bring this pitch book to Texas. And, so, right. <laughs> uh, and I, so I think the union bug is a perfect example. That's we're, we're really at an interesting junction here around some of these issues. Have you thought about hedge funds? We have very few hedge funds. I've read through your book. I'm familiar with your background. And if I'm looking to prove my 110 upside, my 90 downside, that's where a lot of people say, well, that's where hedge funds can help you, particularly on that downside. I just think it's an expensive downside. We talked about my best downside is, is structurally long U.S. dollar. That's actually a positive carry. It's not costing me one in ten to get that downside capture. So I, I just I, I can't get I can't get past the fees. An area that we had a lot of and we're leaning into in this environment is is real estate. And we specifically think there's just a structural mismatch. I think um, data centers, cold storage, that's a structural mismatch. Multifamily, single family housing. We've been underbuilding for a decade. It's a structural mismatch. So we continue to lead into those sectors. So let's dive into that real estate piece. How have you gone about implementing? Mostly direct. So we're 80% direct. So we own a portfolio of 20 garden-style apartment buildings and data centers and a lot of industrial warehouse and cold storage. But for the other 20%, we have funds. And those funds tend to be pretty focused where we have some private REITs, again, that are focused on cold storage and data center or private REITs that'll focus on value-added multifamily, come in to buy a, a B grade and fix up to a B plus, not an A, just a B plus, because you don't want to compete with new product. These are areas, I think, in spite of what's going on here right now with a little bit of softness in rents, the shortage is there. Unless household formation, household formation slows down when people have less kids, we have less immigration, people stay in bad marriages longer, and those things happen around recessions. And so we will see a slowing of household formation 
with household formation running at a million units a year, we're only making 850,000 a year. So the, the shortage is there for a while. When you started taking on these kind of ideas in the direct real estate portfolio, what's your team like to implement on them? Well, I have uh, Keith Watson on the team is pretty much focused full time on alternatives and real estate's a big part of it. In fact, he and I are off to San Francisco tonight. We're going to tour some properties out there that are already in the portfolio, but we make it a habit to what a real estate guy's called. They get walk, walk the tar beach. You have to go and see the product. And how does that work? So you have one person managing, say, 10% of your assets in real estate. We outsource to a firm called Stockbridge Advisors. We outsource lease underwriting, maintenance. Is it time to repave the parking lot? Is it, do, do we have, what's the TI, the tenant improvement budget for the new industrial tenant? So those are easy things to, to outsource to a, to a good expert. And when you decide you're going to do this directly, it sounds like you're coming at it with some key themes and you're just pursuing a select number of opportunities. How do you get to those theses? Well, so we have people come pitch us buildings or Stockbridge will pitch us buildings, time to buy or sell. I'm a big advocate. You find people you trust and you, you know, they, they earn that trust, they keep that trust and you, you're willing to work with them. We have advisors who come in with advice about what, what sectors of the economy or the country, and this is all U.S.-based. You know, real estate is one of those places where you can still have, I think, a, lo- a lot of idiosyncratic uh, opportunity. There is no such thing as one real estate market. You know, the market in Richmond, Virginia is very different than Duluth. And so the two places I like going here right now are where you get this idiosyncratic opportunity in real estate. Uh, the other place, Ted, I think is great, which is where you have uh, such incredible diversity. Uh, and that's in, you know, single B rated CLO equity. So CLO equity, you know, where you gather 200 single B-rated names and throw them in. And I, I buy the bottom slice, the equity slice. So just the opposite of real estate, it's, I just take such a broad portfolio of single B-rated loans and throw it into a CLO structure, lend, you know, lever it 10 times, where I don't have any idiosyncratic risk because it is so well diversified. Those are two great areas for us right now that we lean into. How do you think about the duration of what that opportunity needs to be for it to command your time and attention in the portfolio. Yeah, good point. Because there, there's a lot of bid offer involved, you know, setup time and disposal time. So, yes, I think I think these things should be done with a three to five year horizon, and for real estate and for CLO equity. That's not a six month trade. That's a three to five year opportunity. How do you balance the desire to have certain things that you believe in, certain micro strategies, with the other broad opportunity set that you're not investing in, you know, if you're in data centers and cold storage, there's a lot that you're not investing in, almost kind of like active management versus the index across the portfolio. How do you bring that together? Well, my CFO correctly will chastise me correctly. Again, in all fairness, when, he, when he'll point out that, look, you spend a lot of time, maybe you spend too much time on these little things, which are not going to move the needle. And you should be spending more of your time on these big, chunky things, your U.S. large cap, for example. And um, it's a fair point there. But again, it's these, these small things which can grow into big or these small things which have a greater dispersion of opportunity around them. The dispersion of performance in large cap core is very, very tight compared to the dispersion around private equity or hedge funds or real estate, you know, the dispersion. You're rewarded for spending time there. So, but I, I take your point. We, you know, we've tried things. For instance, we tried insurance linked securities, ILS. It was mostly a portfolio of quota shares. It was, you know, LIBOR plus eight or 900. And it just lose the first year, lose a little bit the second year, make a little of the third year, and finally just pull the ripcord. It, it just that I, I've come to recognize that, well, I think the insurance business, property casualty in particular, 
it's just going to be impossible to judge how much premium you should charge given the climate change issues. You know, who, who would have thought you have wildfires from California? And so it's a real challenge, I feel, for those underwriters. So there's, there's places we've, we've tried, cut my losses, move on. I have very little memory for the book cost on things. I've, I've spend no time thinking about it. Just pull the ripcord and move on. What are some of those other experiments you've run? Intrinsic security is probably at the top of that list. We've been in and out, some some success and converts. We're back in at this time. Again, it's one of those things I think has an asymmetric reward around it. We've tried some quant strategies, you know, back tested quant strategies. Boy, you only you only make that mistake once, you know, buying a back test and and you think, well, I got smart, I got smart quants in the room. They'll never let this go too far astray. So you you learn those lessons the hard way. How do you create the flexibility in your asset pool so that if there's an opportunity that you think is new and interesting, you can find the resources to deploy to it. I think there's an environment building up here. There's something clearly going on in the U.S. Treasury market, lack of liquidity. We're getting gapping price gap that we haven't experienced before. Some of this has to do with, like what happened in, in the UK, you need to sell what you can sell for margin call, you're going to sell US treasuries. What's happening in Japan? Japan just did another $25 billion worth of intervention. That's the second $25 billion in order to raise capital for that, they're selling US treasuries. So we have, we have something going on in the US treasury market where could we get another one of these taper tantrums? So we have been actually just taking treasuries out of the market and replacing them with futures. Futures being more liquid than treasuries in one of these taper tantrums. There's an opportunity cost to get rid of treasuries and buy futures. There's a 25 to 50 basis point mismatch, futures being expensive relative to cash, which is quite common. So it's costing me 25 basis points to 50 basis points to sit with futures. But I have that now that if we get one of these Ben Man appeal moments in treasuries or in the equity market, I have cash on hand. So some of this is just thinking ahead of time about where can I find cash? And the other is, Ted, really important. I just will have a lot of niche strategies that I leave a nickel in so I can push in a dollar later. So for example, I keep a nickel in fallen angels. I keep a nickel in these in these closed-end funds. I keep a nickel in BDCs because when when you get a banana peel moment, you just can't move fast enough to get the legal docs and get the IMA and get the signatures and get the bank account set up. And some of these things, you only have a two-week window. So you need to keep incubating these small things along with liquidity ready for those moments. How broad is that set of nickels that you have? Yeah, there's easy six different strategies where the, you know, we will run it up to a dollar like we did in March of April of 20, and then we ran it back down to a nickel in 21. And so we continue to sit with those. I think that's often a, you know, kind of a overlooked part of the strategy. You, you need to have the structure set up. Is there a different character of those managers that you're comfortable taking from a nickel to a dollar and back to a nickel? Well, I, I, I warn them, so they, they have to be aware of it. If they're glad for a nickel, they're happier with a dollar, but they'll, they'll take any of it in between. Do they tend to be larger managers that, that that moving around doesn't affect them very much? These are mostly kind of small niche managers, to be honest. We tend to be a little bit more tactical than most. And it isn't that we're any smarter or insightful. It's, a lot of it is because we're, we're at a size of 10 billion. I can do that. Again, I really feel for the people at CalPERS who you just can't move the needle. And I feel badly for the, for the firms that are, you know, 500 million to a billion, you're not going to have enough staff focus on it. So, uh, you know, eight to 10, I just feel lucky is a great sweet spot. When it comes to selecting managers, how do you go about figuring out who you want to partner with? My team's all very seasoned. We've all been around for a while, so we don't need a consultant to bring us 
three or four people. I advocate for my team to be out involved in the community. We have open doors to anybody and everybody who wants to come in and have coffee. I consider that to be my job is to invite and listen to smart people all day long. I'm surrounded by these brilliant people willing to come into my office for coffee. What, what's not to love about that? We're a good size. We're about 10 billion in defined benefit assets. If I was 1 billion, I might not get attention. If I was 100 billion, I have that diseconomy of scale. So I can still get involved in things. Like we've, we've been for years involved in a great strategy out of Richmond, Virginia that only buys closed-in bond funds. So I call it closed-in equity funds and bond funds. I call it my um, provide liquidity to motivated sellers. That's a great area to be in. So you get motivated sellers in closed-in funds. These are retail sellers. You get motivated sellers in BDCs. You get motivated sellers in GP-led secondaries and LP-led secondaries. So these are people who... For whatever reason, they have a strong desire for liquidity. I'm more than glad to stamp and say, you know, I'll bridge that for you. And uh, so we call it motivated seller portfolio. So in our motivated seller portfolio, we have these closed-end funds. To what extent, as you walk through these strategies, are you focused on the strategy or the manager pursuing it? A lot on the strategy. I have an accreditance behind my desk. It was given to me 20 years ago by a good friend, uh, Claire. It's a it's a, one of those military plates you know, where you, you have the, the, the corn separated from the peas, separated from the mashed potatoes, separated from the meatloaf, you know, with the little dividers. And that's the way I think about my portfolio. I do not want to hire somebody to manage my corn only to discover the next day they mix it up with mashed potato. In other words, I don't want my equity manager saying, gee, I didn't like equity, so we built up a 10% position in cash. That's my job. I don't like my fixed income guy saying, well, I know that you hired me to manage a portfolio of U.S. mortgage bonds, but there's this great thing going on with Danish mortgage bonds. You're mixing your meatloaf with your potatoes. I, so uh, I, I, it's very, very important to me that managers stay in their box. So for that reason, we don't hire any multi-asset managers. We don't have any macro hedge funds. Because I go to bed on Tuesday thinking i got a portfolio of this many peas and corn and mashed potatoes that only discover, no, I got succotash the next morning. I, I don't know where I am. When you populate your portfolio with a bunch of specialists, how do you go about finding the interesting either adjacencies or the things that you said earlier that fall through the cracks when the people that you have outside are really just looking at their own thing? Well, we have a couple of great long-time relationships where they will, they will come to us with ideas and say, gee, we're looking at this. You think you'd be interested in seed capital or we'll reverse inquiry back to them. I'm not going to go to four guys in a shoebox and give them a mandate where they're using derivatives and prime broker. And, you know, I, you go to large firms, you give them a sharp knife and you trust them to use it. I have no problem seed capital, something at Wellington or seed capital, where it's a room full of adults can handle a sharp knife. How have you approached thinking about the SG? I think it's probably okay to mention we're invested in Rourke Capital. Rourke Capital invests in a lot in franchises. And one of the franchises they apparently invest in is Arby's fast food chain. Arby's serves chicken sandwiches and pita was not happy with the way Arby's slaughters their chickens. So PETA got a hold of the list of who are the LPs. And I was one of the many LPs that overnight started getting a flood of emails from PETA. As an investor in this fund, you are enabling you know, humanity to cruelty to animal behavior. And, and so they're sending emails off to my chairman. My chairman's calling me in the middle of the night saying, what are you doing down there? And so this is where activism can flow back to, to even an LP. These are some of the ESG pressures that are still, it, it will flow back through 
private company formation as well. Much of it, Ted, is it's old wine in a new bottle. Of course, I've always been concerned about shareholder proxy access. I've always been concerned about board tenure. I've always been concerned about litigation and, and rules around child labor laws and around uh, civil rights and around OSHA standards. And I've always been concerned around if I buy a building, is it sitting one foot above high mead tide in Miami? How is that something new? We've always been concerned about environmental issues for buildings in Miami and companies that have poor voter access, proxy access, and companies which have poor board tenure rules. I've always been interested. So how did those suddenly get wrapped up in something new called ESG? I'll tell you how it happens because we have a lot of Wall Street firms who have a conflict of interest. They can wrap it into this new bottle and slap on another 40 base points of fees for it. I'm not saying they're they're bad people or evil people. It's just it's just human nature. If I can take this old stuff and wrap it in a new ribbon and charge 40 for it, I'll do it. What do you see of your peers in the corporate pension world and, and the ways that you think they do things well? And then Alternatively, some of the things you think they could improve upon. Well, most of my peer group is kind of is again down this LDI path where they you know, cash match your portfolio, your assets with your liabilities, and then you build this up to 105 percent, and you, as you know, it's called pension risk transfer. You give your your liabilities and your assets prudential. You know, we're just not in that we're not in that school. Prudential invited me out a couple of years ago to, to speak at their at the conference. I said, well, listen, I have a lot of respect for you as a firm, but as you know, I don't practice. LDI, this pension risk transfer PRT thing. They said, well, that's exactly what we want you. So I got up and talked about how do we approach? Why do we feel this way? And why are we still absolutely return focused? But I kind of told this audience of 300 people Prudential, I said, but, you know, things change. A new CFO might have a different opinion about this. If, if I ever transfer my assets to you, though, it's going to be a staple deal. Well, I had 300 people going to say a staple deal. I go, yes. Stapled on the last page of that contract is my resume. If you're taking my assets, you're taking me too. I don't understand a lot of my peer group is kind of down this path of kind of giving away their, their job. And again, it's not the CIO, it's often the CFO and has concerns about contribution volatility, balance sheet volatility, says this is not my core competency. I make widgets for a living. Why am I also running this hedge fund over here called a pension? I fully respect all those. But my, my peer group is very deeply down that path. I'm a chair and trustee of, of three UK plans the UK, we're required to have a consultant, and we're required to have participant beneficiaries on the committee, which, which are two problems that also led to this little fiasco in, in the UK around their LDI programs. You, you have too many amateurs in the room, and so you can't move fast enough in these committees. But, but the consultant there was always, they'd always take this, my portfolio, and they divide it into risk-seeking and risk-reducing. So last time I was there... I said, risk reducing, you have, you have guilts on your risk reducing. Guilts are down 48% year to date. This was, you know, two weeks ago. How, how do you call that risk reducing? They said, well, in a, your liabilities are also down. I said, no, 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 that's not how we invest. We're investing for total return. I said, you know, we, I just really want to scrap those words. You know, uh, guilts are just guilts. We're, to call them risk enhancing, risk reducing is you're setting things up wrongly. I want my board to, to look at the holistic of just where in the cap structure do you want to participate and let's not put labels on it. Do you have a group of peers that you frequently share ideas with? Yes. So I belong, there's a group called SEBA, Committee for the Investment of Employee Benefit Assets. There's 105 of us and we meet four times a year. I have a lot of respect for my peer group in those meetings. We mostly talk about uh, governance, accounting, regulatory Attracting and retaining talent, we don't talk so much about investing because everybody's off in a different investment path. And I think that's, I think the endowment foundation 
equally spends a lot on governance and accounting and perhaps a little bit more investing as well. What are you most concerned about in the investment environment going forward? If you've read your Hyman Minsky, this, we, are, we are potentially, uh, you know, coming up to a Minsky moment here. You know, remember Minsky talked about three things. There was, there was hedging, speculation, and then Ponzi. And then after that was the Minsky moment. The markets became so used to having no rate volatility and no real rate risk right? Real rates were negative, that you began to get used to it. So they built up leverage in the UK, they built up leverage in Japan. As we take away this you know, low rates and no rate volatility, stuff's going to break. And uh, we're seeing that now. You know, I grew up in California, Ted, where, you know, California has, you know, uh, hundreds of earthquakes every year, a dozen of which, you know, maybe you could feel in different parts. And uh, you know, I always remember growing up saying, lots of little earthquakes is a good thing, because that, that means you're not, it's not storing up that energy for one big thing. We kind of didn't get any earthquakes for the last many years, most certainly since post-COVID, because we just got used to this. Rates are low and there's no volatility, so we can take on this leverage. So I am I think there's a risk out there, and I think somebody's going to break because of the dollar. I, you know, I simply can't import food. I can't import fertilizer. I can't import energy because I just don't have access to dollars. And so, therefore, I'm going to begin to sell my dollar reserves. You know, this, this, is a, this is a problem. Something is going to break out there. So with that belief and never really knowing exactly what it's going to be, how do you think about positioning your portfolio? Just have liquidity available. Like I said, having, <laughs> selling my treasuries for futures at this time, building in things I think that are asymmetrical and risk, building and having all these little nickels invested so I can push in a dollar, um, making sure that the team, we all travel quite a bit. Everybody walks away with the knowledge, here's how much money we need to move to increase our equity allocation by 2% or to decrease our bond allocation by three years. So we just, you know, have those in the back of the envelope so that we're not wasting a lot of time on getting together on the phone. Everybody knows in this kind of event here is here's the kind of capital we need to move. And how different do you feel that posturing is today from how you were positioned even as far back as when you started at Textron? So I started back in, uh, in 2013. And so it was in the middle of this whole Pension Protection Act where a lot of people were pursuing LDI. We were increasingly an outlier that we were not. Uh, we had a, we were had a lot more hedge funds at the time and had with mixed success. We were evolving and we continue to evolve. Certainly don't know the answer to, to all this, but I, I don't think that uh, capitalism or return opportunities are, are, are dead. It frustrates me so much for people to say, gee, all the, it's, it's going to be low for longer returns. People are reading the wrong paper. You know, you need to, maybe you need to start to, to pick up a little bit more Silicon Valley reading or biotech reading or there's a lot of exciting things going out there to begin with, you know, nuclear fusion. You know, we might be just 20 years away. Talk about upsetting the apple cart. We, we might be just 20 years away from commercializing nuclear fusion. How exciting. Charles, I want to make sure I ask you a couple of fun closing questions before I let you go. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I'm an amateur carpenter. Actually, I make furniture and so far so good. I still got 10 fingers. <laughs> and where did that come from? My father was always a craftsman, so I have, I have this beautiful, dedicated workshop full of, you know, table saws and band saws. And, you know, all day long we're making spreadsheets, with, which whatever you think they're worth today, they're worth nothing tomorrow. It's kind of, so it's nice to make a, a chair that I made 20 years ago and still there. What's your biggest pet peeve? For investing, my biggest pet peeve is the word uh, yield. Uh, I think anybody should spend half a minute looking at the math of how you calculate yield to maturity. 
it's bad math. It's horrible math, this idea that you're going to reinvest at the same rate. So, of course, I pay attention to income returns and I pay attention to capital gain returns, but the word yield is just really bad math. So I, I don't use that word. Biggest personal pet peeve. Well, I think I'd be remiss. I'm, I'm sure we're all very frustrated about how we tend to box people. I do it myself. We tend to box people into political or economic constructs instead of being a little bit better listener. I know it's a constant struggle for me and for all of us. So that's, just, I think, a lesson for all of us to think about. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Uh, Bill Gogney, 1979, got me started in, uh, he was my professional rabbi in uh, banking and asset management. I was portfolio manager for 25 years after that. And then in 2005, Robin Diamante, who allowed me to be the rabbi coming over to the allocator side as a corporate plan sponsor. Robin is now still CIO of uh, Raytheon Technologies. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? Real estate. Because I, I, you know, it can you can touch it, you can taste it, and it's extremely idiosyncratic. Again, there is no ubiquitous single market, so it's I find an exciting space. How about your biggest blind spots? Goodness, my my wife of thirty three years would say um, that's my husband. Uh, often wrong, but never in doubt. So <laughs> <laughs> she's right. I my strong opinions and enthusiasm times can be. I think, blinding to the conversation, and that's that's not always healthy. How do you work with that within the construct of your team? Well, I, I try to be the last to speak, right? That, that's that's you, you wrote about that in your book, of course, the importance of, of leadership is to allow others to speak first. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Oh, goodness. My, 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 my father was a HVAC mechanic. My mother was a nurse, and uh, they both had this just incredible can do anything, can fix anything, can um, take on a new project, take on a different skill set that they didn't have before. We can figure this out. Just jump in and start figuring it out. All right, Charles, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I made a couple of bad moves in my, in my career. I've probably, I've probably had seven, eight jobs. I've been fired from two of them or laid off. Same thing. It feels, oh, it all feels horrible. But um, in my young years, my 30s, I really should have stuck by a couple of you know, in the business, my rabbi, you know, somebody who would have guided me and protected me from the, particularly when I was in the investment banking world, this tends to be much more cutthroat. So I really encourage 30-year-olds, if you find somebody who's a good rabbi, stay with it. Don't get tracked away by the higher pay or the better work-life balance. You know, working with the right person is the most critical thing. Charles, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Great to be here. Good luck, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at CapitalAllocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.